Hello, friends. We are back for our bonus episode, and we have with us here a renowned indigenous flautist. Chioktan contributed the music to the previous episode in the podcast, and he has generously agreed to come and spend a bit of time with us and just talk about how he came to this work and what might be some other thoughts he has for us, people of the global majority, as we make our way forward in these times. So welcome, Chioktan. Thank you, Shiana, and uh, good to be here. I'll introduce myself in our language real quick. Osiem, Nastelacha, Nastelacha, Siem, Geno Ike, Punchquiloquence, a tear, tang it, Siem, Nastelacha, Chioctin, Sinasnatch, Lates and Utpusanich, Eason Tachel Swahela. So uh, I am Chioctin from Quisanich Nation. Good to be here and good feelings in my heart and happy people have joined in. Okay, so why don't we just get started with a very kind of basic and fundamental question. How did you come to this work? What called you? When I say work, I mean, whatever it is that you are doing that speaks to your soul that you feel is service to the world. How did you come to this? How were you called? Hmm. Yes, I would say that began with my mom, Saseyata. Her name is Saseyata, and she is still with us. She was born in the Chakaitlung, in the intellectual, spiritual house of our people, in the house of Chiyokton, my grandfather's house in Wishathlip, in West Saanich. She's a warrior. She has seen so much, you know. She'll tell you stories, the most amazing stories, and I love sitting and listening to her stories, but in front of a group of people, she'll say, I'm a survivor of terrorists, and she'll pull up her skirt and show you a bullet wound across her left knee, about seven inches long, and she'll tell a story when my grandfather was land defending, Priest Charlie and Louis Charlie, grandfather, defending the bridge there in our North Saanich in Psycom. She was there, and her mama said, don't go to the beach because of Hnitam. They're trying to take our land, the settler colonial folk, you know. And my mom says, hey, I was just a little girl. I was eight years old and I loved the beach and I could not stay away from the beach. She told us, you know, and, and, uh, and she just went to the beach and played anyway. And as she was playing, she heard the sounds, you know, that she didn't recognize, like, she didn't even know what they were until later she saw the Western movies. There were bullets ricocheting off of rocks. All of a sudden, her mama just racing up, running up, and scoops her up and runs her off to safety. And when they get to a safe place, she is bleeding on her knee, and she got hit by a bullet. Some squatty, swaika, crazy settler colonial man shooting at an eight-year-old girl on the beach. You know, that's the world that she grew up in. My mom, in the schools, she escaped from the what they call residential schools, but those were just death camps. They were genocidal points of genocide. They've found nearly 9,000 
children's bodies and unmarked graves, and they've only checked a, you know, a small fraction of the schools in what they call Canada. So my mom escaped from there. She got scooped up by them and uh, kidnapped because all of the children were kidnapped without consent. She got scooped up by them once, and uh, she tells that story to us. I heard it when I was a boy. She said her older sister, Margaret, and then her younger sister, Aggie, all three got kidnapped along the road there near the res. And um, the older sister said, I'm going to push you guys out the truck. And the truck was moving. And you guys are going to get up after you fall and run. And you're not going to stop. You're not going to look back. So she did. And they ran and ran. And my mom said, the brambles, the non-indigenous blackberries, the stickers, you know. She ran through those and they were just shredding her skin up. She said she was bloody from head to toe when she finally made it to the other end of those stickers, but she got away, her and her sister. You know, that's one time, but when she finally did get caught, she went there and she got shot at again when she dove into the water and tried to escape and out on what they call Cooper Island. So... She's a survivor and she's a warrior. She's still a loving person, you know, but in the schools, she knew she didn't want to learn their English because she saw how bad they were, how very, very bad they were, those priests and nuns. And um, yeah, they would beat her on the wrist to force a language upon her. And she already spoke her language fluently, you know, as a seven, eight-year-old. And But she wouldn't cry for them at all. She would not give them tears. And her cousin said, Quan Meili, her name, English name, Mary. We have no R's. Uh, it's Meili. Quan Meili, they cry for them. They want you to cry. But she shut her brain off to her body and she wouldn't even give them her tears. She is so strong, my mom is. So she's inspired me to, to keep fighting and uh, to keep working to live a traditional life in a in a traditional world that birthright that we have to our culture is intimately tied to all beings around us we're unseparated we've lived in an unseparated state from all beings for tens of thousands of years here and that's uh, allowed us to co-create paradise within our spirit in our body and our our mind even and that way we could create the world that way after the falling of the world we have the history so far back that we know the world had burned and through sacred promise to hold sacred relationship with all of these beings we restored the world and so who we are here in our coast salish or in all indigenous people i would say globally are keepers of sacred promises to hold sacred relationships with all beings that Creator ever put on this our sacred Mother Earth. With that, my family has never forgotten. Many families have never forgotten who they are as human beings. We still know who we are, and we still know our human responsibilities. We know our place amongst all other beings. Even though the world has completely changed around us and is driving for a cliff as fast as it can, we are still working to live in a way that our ancestors would be proud of. I don't accept this world as it is. 
I don't accept the direction that we're going. I don't accept colonialism because it's violent. It's violent towards most everything and had the most ill relationship with our people, us human people, indigenous human people, and an ill relationship of disrespect towards all other non-human people here in our Salish Sea. I can speak for our region because I know the raw numbers from our region, and 98.2% of the ancient forests are gone here. We never killed one tree, one ancestor tree. I was told we just didn't kill them. We didn't need to. We knew how to harvest from them very wisely. And besides, they were covering the shorelines, you know, thousands of miles of shoreline. A giant ancient tree log would roll up on your beach, most likely, and um, you wouldn't have to go kill them. And yeah, and the natural animals are gone too. You know, when's the last time you saw a grizzly bear, a wolf, anything like that? The salmon, they're hardly there comparatively. If our tribes were not doing the hatcheries, you wouldn't even see salmon hardly, you know, and that's the truth. That's where we live now. And us indigenous human beings as well, we're in those same numbers where we've been knocked out somewhere in the 95% to 98% range, gone, annihilated almost as well. So if we don't stand up, if we accept this world as it is and just shrug our shoulders and say, well, it's just how it is, what is the future for our children going to look like in just a few years? What is it going to look like for these natural, non-human people that I know our people have given sacred promise to ensure that they are well? What is their world going to look like as the rivers are in 73 degrees temperature in the summer cooking our salmon, a climate disaster that's unfolding in front of our eyes? You know, but now is the time. Now is the time to stand up for the very mother that birthed us, and listen to our first peoples, listen to our wisdom keepers, listen to our elders, listen to our matriarchal elders, our life givers, because they have always given us direction. Even David Suzuki, a brilliant scientist in what they call British Columbia, his grandchildren are water protectors now. They show up on the front lines and put their bodies in the way of, of destruction of the sacred. He sat with our people a lot, many, many times, and he's been quoted as saying, until we adopt the governance systems of the first peoples, we'll continue on this path of destruction. Because inside of what they call Canada and what they call the U.S., it's all bureaucratic in the government. And not one bureau is speaking to the other bureau about the direction of society. Yet our people, our first peoples here have always had a direction for our societies. And that is given to us by the elder and elder matriarchs, particularly guiding us towards life, guiding us towards respect for all life and all beings. And indeed, that system worked fine. The salmon plugged the rivers when Lewis and Clark showed up. They wrote in their journals. You can walk across the backs in every estuary, in every river. They literally plug the rivers and estuaries. Our Hwasanich elders have been quoted from 
many, many, many years ago, probably a hundred years ago, they said the creator put so much food here on our lands and waters that when the ducks took flight, it would blot out the sun. It would darken the sky. That would be like a David Attenborough documentary where, you know, 300,000 birds go in, into flight. But now we're lucky to see five ducks. We need to consider the words of our people, consider the ways of our people, because they're proven to lead us into a paradisical world. And indeed, it did work. And we can do it again. So those are some of the reasons, most important reasons why I prayerfully fight for the future of all children, for the future of our cultures to thrive and not just hang on by a thread as we watch ecosystems disappear in front of our eyes at a rate that is unfathomable, unimaginable, the way the ecosystem is disappearing in this world and how it has changed even here, right here in what they call the Nadukhduapsh, uh, the Duwamish area where I live here in what they call Seattle. Mm. Wow, you said so much there. And I'm going to go back to a couple things that particularly inspired me in my Africanity. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you live indigenously. And you live among your people. And that sounds like that's how you have enough personal resource in order to go out and do the work you do fighting for being a warrior for all beings. So I have basically two questions. How do you maintain a lifestyle that really supports you and resources you among your people in your indigenous way? Mm -hmm. And then how do you balance that? with going out into the world and confronting settler colonizers and capitalism. How do you find that balance? If you can say some more about your lifestyle and how you maintain that as a way to inspire the rest of us to grab hold. Yes, good question. Most indigenous people are struggling. Many of our people on the reservations are struggling with drugs and alcohol and when you have forced the spirituality from people, their language, their culture, it's an empty place. This is an empty world colonialism has created, and, and we're disadvantaged. We're pretty much at the top list of everything that can kill you and anything that can disadvantage you. Many of our people are living that way. Sure, we have some casino tribes about, but many tribes have no casino. They have nothing. Some places still have no running water. Depends on where you go. So finding a way to survive inside of colonialism takes a lot of uh, ingenuity and a craftiness. I am a musician. I am a storyteller and a cultural keeper. I hold aspects of our culture. Not all of it, of course. I, I just I carry the things that have touched my heart the things that resonated from the elders that I've sat with the most with me. They pertain to some of the things that I've already spoken of. So, yeah, I do draw income from that. I'm also a drum maker. I make drums and sell drums and 
sometimes fairly large orders. And uh, I'm a flute maker and I've done workshops in both. An artist, uh, do carvings and things like that too. So yeah, we get by with the skills that we have. And then our protectors of the Salish Sea have won a few grants in the past and people have offered up donations. We've done a few GoFundMes and when we did occupy the Olympia State Capitol, we've done that three times. We did do a GoFundMe, I think, twice for the prayer walk and then once for the continued occupation as we held a presence there after 2017. We stayed there for eight months. We'd show up every morning and go into the top steps of the Capitol and pray. And that was after Jay Inslee sent you know, 70 riot police to sweep us away as soon as dusk showed up. So he didn't look bad. As soon as the darkness came, they were lined up three quarters away. Uh, if you go from the justice building at the Capitol and then you got the Capitol, there's that, you know, grass in between. Well, they came out from behind the justice building and they lined up and they almost made it. You know, they're like five eighths across from that building. They just had another. 40 of them, they could have just spanned across the two giant buildings. It's crazy. And uh, we're just like, what is this? And they're all in armored gear. And we showed up proclaiming that we're there in a prayer. We're indigenous people, Coast Salish, who have returned to our village site of Stachas. So, yeah, that's how they treat indigenous people. We occupied that place three times, peacefully and prayerfully to demand a future for our salmon, for the whales, and for all natural beings, and for a future for our children. And that year, in 2017, we demanded a climate emergency declaration from the governor and and also a uh, basically a group of people that could help them make those decisions who were affected most, like indigenous, BIPOC, and other people. Yeah. So yeah, we've done a lot to make a change. It sounds like you're doing something similar to what a lot of us here do in Port Townsend, which is making a a kind of an overt decision not to or to limit your participation in capitalism and settler colonial society as much as possible to to maintain your circle of relationship with just the people you know who are kin. You have to get creative, and it sounds like that's what you've done. I mean, you have made a life for yourself. You've supported yourself. Support meaning you can eat and get the things you need to get by your music, your musicianship, your craftsmanship, and grants. That is exactly how many of us are doing it. So that feels very validating. Thank you. (laughs) You know, whatever you can do to make a life outside of capitalism. Yeah. And so living as you do, how do you balance then your your kinships, your relationships, the stuff that feeds you, your spirituality, time and energy given towards that, all your relations, you know, the place that you are? How do you balance that with going out and doing that kind of work that you just described? Mm hmm. 
because you can't do that all the time. You can't mm. do that exclusively. You mm. may, I don't even know what percentage of time you could do something like that. Yeah. But how do you balance that? How do you find that balance? Yeah. When occupations happen, usually show up when indigenous led occupations are making a call out for our people to show up. Like at Standing Rock, I, I showed up in 2000, late uh, 16, I guess, and uh, I saw how cold it was going to be. And it, it was in like late August. It was already freezing cold. And I was just like, wow, the elders, what are they going to do? They're, they'll still be sleeping in their trucks. You know, they're so stubborn. So I thought I need to help our elders and families get through the blizzards, the massive storms that come out of the Arctic right through with Chedishikon. I knew they they would. So I prayed about it and then ended up inventing a structure. We started building them there and the youth there, uh, Standing Rock youth, dubbed them tarpies <laughs> instead of teepees. In a term of endearment, they called them tarpies and uh, they liked them a lot. They said, but they're nothing like our teepees, of course. And that's true. They just have a shape like them, but made out of modern materials, two by fours lightweight metal brackets and plywood and poly tarp heavy duty poly tarp so yeah we ended up building 48 we're on track to build 60 and we had all the wood stoves plasma cut so before we got uh, booted out we'd moved our camp over to uh, cannonball reservation along the cannonball river people were saying you know hey what shitty chicone's going to get raided and you should probably move over there and we did but eventually even they told us to leave. But by that time, we had accomplished 48 complete, insulated, double-lined tarp on the outside of the two-by-fours, tarp on the inside. These uh, modified barrel stoves. I've studied wood heat a lot, and I, I knew barrel stoves are horrible heaters, although you'd think they'd be good because they're so thin, but they're not because the flames just shoot up to the flue collar and, and you barely make any heat at all. And so... What I did was put a, a baffle in them, and the baffles were 28 inches long, basically almost twice the length of a normal wood stove. So, you know, the flames had to go from below where the coals are and up towards the door and then go through a restricted area on the top of the stove for more than two feet. And those stoves were heater bombs. Literally, in a blizzard, when the blizzards hit, as soon as the sun went down, it was zero degrees Fahrenheit outside. And the stoves would be dead cold, no hot coals, nothing. And we had dry firewood loaded in there and build a fire. And in three minutes, not five, three, you'd be jumping back five feet and shredding your clothes. And it's zero degrees outside. People had grass growing in their tarpies. I met the lady I, when I was at Kent University. I met her. I rode in a car with her. I was. She started telling the story. I was like, "No way! I'm I'm the inventor of those." And I heard this story, and now I'm sitting next to you finally. <laughs> so yeah, man, never believe that just one person can't make a difference. You know, one native from thousands of miles away housed 48 families in an occupation to stop horrible pipeline, Dakota Access Pipeline. So. Yeah, I definitely show up when I can. I was at Ferry Creek for four months, went there and finally could get across the colonizer line, the fictitious border, after COVID let up a little and at a reunion, I showed up and then they got raided when I was supposed to be going to the capital to speak in what they call Victoria and Lekwungen territory. 
but they got raided. So I just stayed, you know, and I ended up staying on the mountain for four months, battling the RCMP and industry to, to save the ancient forest because the elder Bill Jones said, go save the old growth trees. And so I did, even though the chief who's elected chief and council, they're not hereditary chiefs. They're not traditional leaders. And a lot of times they're corrupt. Jeff Jones, the chief of Pachidot, is not from Pachidot originally. He married into the tribe, and yeah, he's the one that was there when they said, yeah, let's kill those trees. Let's get some money. And I know the tribes are impoverished, but what are you going to do with money when you have no culture left and you have no ecosystem to even drink water and, and breathe air with? Money will do us nothing. So, yeah, when an elder says to go save, no matter what, He's a traditional elder. And I'm like, yes, I listen to my elders. So we showed up on the mountain, stayed there. So, yeah, you know, when you can show up and when you got to go back into the vacuum of colonialism and suffer, endure the emptiness of that world, we have to do it. It took me two years to transition fully back into the vacuum of colonialism. You know, I'm not whining about it or complaining, but it's just how the world is. When you're with many people that are working together in a true community, and they're all working in common purpose with no money, they're not working for money, they're working to do good things in the world that need to be done, you basically are, are in love with the place, and you're in love with the community, and you're in love with the work, and then when it blows up and it goes away, you just got to go home to your box, and that's tough. Mm-hmm. You know, it's tough to stare at four walls after that because I don't have a native community around me here. I'm more like in an island out here. So it's not easy. We need to keep our communities, what we call community, at least today, as functional as possible. We don't have community like we did before contact. That's gone. They erased it. They killed it, just like they did the ancient forests, natural animals, and most of our people. Community doesn't exist here like it did. We had our intellectual spiritual houses with, you know, up to seven families living in in there, multi-generational people seeing each other's face every day, feeling their spirit, like knowing that, hey, I rely upon you so that all of this works. There's no pyramid. Colonialism is the pyramid. And you just got the big cheese at the top. Basically, what they call the United States of America got 50 white men, and all of us work and toil. All that money funnels up to them, and they pay no tax. They just pay no tax. They're the richest, most spoiled welfare recipients in the whole world, right here in what they call the United States of America. It's criminal. Ronald Reagan did that. He deregulated everything. They used to pay like you know, 30, 40% tax because they had so much money. But now they got every loophole in the world for them. They pay zero. And we pay all the taxes. Us people are just putting our nose to the grind wheel. That's the greed, the dark spirit that has moved and masked the human spirit. When people say it just messed up humans, effed up humans, I say, no, that's a lie. Our people never did any of the things you see around us here. We never did any of these destructive things. We managed to culminate a true human spirit inside of every child, and each person knew their human responsibility, and they knew their place amongst all other beings. 
So it's a matter of education and not allowing a dark spirit, filling the sacred place, a chusada, not squelquins, a sacred place where your heart lives with beautiful teachings, ancient teachings of Mother Earth and the circle of life. And now when that's full, there's no room for a bunch of dark spirits to move in. That's what my elder told me. My elder cousin with Stimini, Johnny Moses, said, if, and this is the old thing that elders would say, I said, for the good teachings, you have to work hard. You have to show up. You have to sit as a child even and be quiet and you listen. And they bring you into the chakate lung, the, the longhouse, and they say, you sit, you be quiet, you listen, and observe the way that these people carry themselves. You listen to the way that they speak because it could be you up there next. Now you're really listening. <laughs> and so he said that for those good teachings, you got to do that work. And it's not easy. He said, for the opposite of those good teachings, you don't have to do anything. He said, just don't feel this. And he put his hands on his heart, where your hachusa is, the intellect of your heart, a sacred place. Just don't feel this and leave it wide open and empty. And all of those things are the opposite of good teachings. They'll just move right on in. Before you know it, they're driving the bus. So that's what we see today. The dark spirit of greed, dominance, control, racism, abuse. That's driving the bus of the human today. And where will that take us? That will take us to hell on earth, basically. Though we didn't have the concept of hell, but they do. And they, they came here telling us, you're going to go to hell because you never heard this man's name. Yet they were so blind, they couldn't even say they were already in paradise that we had created, that we had already created paradise within ourselves and around us from the beautiful teachings that were given to us, line unbroken, elder to child for tens of thousands of years. And they destroyed that, but we're rebuilding it now. We're re restoring that within ourselves. And it's each and every one of us, our job as a human being, each and every one of us, to re-indigenize ourselves. Ask people, raise your hands if you ever met somebody who wasn't from Mother Earth. You know, we're all from Mother Earth. And I believe it is our job to return to that holistic state of wellness, the state of indigenousness within ourselves, so that we can heal this world holistically and indigenously, so this world will be holistically healed, an indigenous world once again where the plants are given respect before they're cut. The natural animal is given respect. And the ancient forests, the trees are given respect and mostly let them be. People think you know, the whole idea of conservation in the United States is like, kick these, you know, like John Muir was quoted as, these savages soil the beauty of this place when they talked about Yosemite. And they kicked us out. That's the most racist thing. Like, only the nature is beautiful and these savages, you got to get rid of them. What a madman. What a crazy idea. We were holding that place sacred. We were holding that place well. That's our job. And if you just remove the man from everything and, and then say, oh, that's nature over there. Don't go to nature. Stay away from, you know, like whatever. Don't be with it. Don't commune with it. Say it's over there. That's an insane idea. 
because for us, there's no separation. You speak of nature, you, you make nature well, you make yourself well. You make yourself well, you make nature well. You know what they call nature. And then everything's well. It's not easy to walk in two worlds. To walk in two worlds, you have to be proficient in the colonial world. But you have to be proficient in the ways of our ancestors. Mm. Well, thank you for this. I don't even need to say anything more. I'm not going to add on to this brilliance you've spoken. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you, and I feel nourished. I feel the words you've spoken are going to contribute to our community being well within and without. Thank you. Marvelous. Hey, good to uh, share some time with you, Oceana, and raise my hands to you, all the good work that you're doing for social justice, environmental justice, for wellness within ourselves in this world. And uh, keep up your good work. Stay strong. And many prayers for you and the work that you're doing. Heiska, CM. Thank you, Honorable One. appreciate you for listening to this episode of Talk and Story. Music is provided with permission by Ben Wilson and Camilla G. Talk and Story is a project of well-organized and has enjoyed the support of the Port Townsend Arts Commission, Jefferson Community Foundation, Finn River Farm and Cidery, and the Community Equity Initiative, as well as private, in-kind, and monetary donations. If you'd like to support us, please go to well organized.org to make a donation to the Talk and Story podcast. That's well-organized.org. Thank you.